Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is renowned biographer and historian Jenny Uglow, whose previous books include Lives of Hogarth, Elizabeth Gaskell, and Thomas Buick, and her group portrait of the Lunar Men, the Birmingham Society of Amateur Scientists and Inventors, who in the 18th century helped pave the way for the modern world. Jenny's new book is called A Gambling Man, Charles II and the Restoration. She writes in the prologue that it's a challenge for someone like me, whose sympathy lies with the radicals and the artisans protesting about the abuse of power, to venture into the centre, the heart of power. So I asked her, what had prompted this departure? It's a sort of complicated move backwards, I suppose, in that when I was writing about the Lunar Men, I became fascinated by the Royal Society and the demonstrators that went out and so on, and then looking at the members of the early Royal Society, really interested in the 1660s, and seeing how things had changed. And also, though it doesn't seem really relevant, I was terribly moved in by 1989 when the Eastern Bloc, countries sort of all came out on the streets and there was a new regime and there was this extraordinary sort of atmosphere of hope and things will change and I thought well how much did things change in the restoration and became more and more interested and then realised that actually at that point everything is still circling around the figure of the king all the hopes and expectations and disappointments and whatever and so it came from there and it, it, it Charles as it were moved because he's the man of that era moved into the centre. So you decided not to write a conventional biography. You decided to focus on a decade, about through the mm. the prism of of Charles. Yes, I did. It's quite hard thinking back to remember how the ship, how a book takes shape. But it did seem that in terms of meeting those expectations and fighting particular battles, that decade, the history of Britain for that particular period was sort of set on a course and also in Charles's own life it's the centre of his life at 30 to 40 and somehow it sort of summed up everything he'd come from so he, he behaved that, that way because of his past traumatic past and his own personality and then after that he he too was sort of set on a on a course so it was like a great kind of if you entered, you would be able to see all the way around. And you call the book a gambling man, and I wondered, and that, that's a, a trope that runs all the way through the book, I wondered, was that something which was present from the beginning, or did that gradually emerge from the, from the evidence as you read? The idea of the gambling man, or calling him a gambling man, wasn't present from the beginning, but it was present when I looked at the way he behaved, and... And, and the choices he made and the way that he never quite let people see what was in his head and I think it just happened it's often like that with book titles you, you're working away or putting these together and you say well what are you writing about oh I'm writing about this with a gambling man or something and then it it becomes a book and without one knowing it you've got a you've realised you've, you've worked out a, a clue or a way of uh, approaching it. Charles returns to England just short of his 30th birthday and I, you mentioned a moment ago mm. the things which had shaped him. Can you say a little bit more about the, the infancies which you think were important before he got back to England yes. uh, in 1660? I tried to talk about his past really while he's on the boat coming across from Holland to England and um, 
recreating himself as a new person, as the as a king, which he never expected to be, and all those influences that have built up on his past, his idyllic childhood in Whitehall with Charles I and Henrietta Maria suddenly being taken away. So the the memories plus the sudden uncertainties and knowledge of death and war and then the exile and the poverty and the charm that he had to employ, which had turned out to be a very effective weapon. But also he'd been a poor relation in France where his much younger cousin, Louis XIV, was rising to become a grand and extravagant and autocratic, indeed absolute monarch. And there's some envy of that. I think Charles would quite have liked to be that. He came back with that. But he'd also been uh, with his sister, Mary, who was married to Will- William of Orange Sr., as it were, in, in Holland. So he'd been familiar with problems, as it were, of the Dutch Republic, but also the new ideas, the new science and mathematics in Paris, Descartes, Gassendi, microscopes, telescopes, everything in Leiden. So he came back to England with a, a set of new ideas, but also a very strong sense of the glory or dignity of the old regime. But he didn't really have a model because things clearly couldn't operate no. in the way that they had operated before, but he didn't, there was, there was no model he could turn to and think, well, that's, that's the kind of monarch that I need to be. There was no model. I mean, Europe actually very, very diverse. It went from absolute monarchies to republics. But also with the death of his father in 1649, the very fact of the execution of the monarch somehow removed some aura of divinity from monarchy. And in practical terms, many things had been abolished. The feudal dues, which actually the monarch could call on for finance. And... When Charles came back, he had to find a way of working with Parliament, who had voted to call him back, and also who now held the purse strings. So he was in a completely new situation. He was allegedly the monarch who summed up the whole of the country as were in his person. But actually, in order to rule the country, he was dependent on Parliament. And you mentioned the, the purse strings there, and it's clear all the way through that cash is a really important issue. And, you know, running his court is not a not an inexpensive business. Cash is vital. And it's running the country and running his court and his private life. And he certainly was extravagant. And his mistresses were extravagant. And he wanted to set up separate establishments for his wife, and he married Catherine of Braganza. But it wasn't simply court extravagance. I mean, he actually had to pay the civil service. He had to pay the army. He had to pay the navy. And the taxes that were raised were hopelessly insufficient. It's the first time that a monarch called on Parliament in peacetime. And Parliament tried to work out a sort of formula which would say how much it cost to run the country. But first of all, their their estimate was far too low. And secondly, they didn't even raise the taxes to fill that low estimate. So Charles was constantly in debt, constantly begging for money. Tell me a little bit more about the court, because on one hand, you've got the extravagance and the balls and the masks and so on. But you also show a sort of darker side of the court where reputations were delicate things and women in particular mm-hmm. found it very hard to establish themselves and the dueling and so on. So what, yeah. what, kind of, what kind of environment do you think the court really was? 
The court's fascinating and it is a dangerous place. The court centres on Whitehall in London, which itself was a huge rambling palace. And it's very hierarchical in the household. There are these sort of intimate servants, the gentlemen of the bedchamber, and then there are grooms of the bedchamber, and there are pages of the bedchamber, and they're little tight circles, and they all know each other's gossip. And when the women come, because they come as the same sort of attendants to the Queen or to the Duchess of York, as it happened, they're immediately sort of eyed up, because the court when Charles arrived was actually quite a kind of laddish place with its own language and yes people got drunk they gambled they dueled but more than that they're like a little sort of closed group with their own jokes and and so forth and then women entering get sort of pounced upon i mean they're seen as as little sort of tidbits for the for the courtiers so it was very hard to maintain a your reputation which which was vital to do so so It's a friendly place to a certain degree, but there's also a sense of jockeying for position because the ruling at this point too is also done from the court. It's like a private cabinet. There's the parliament and there's the Privy Council, which is the official committee body to rule the country. But then Charles's gentlemen of the bedchamber the bedchamber was his most intimate place where he could talk directly they had tremendous power so there's a lot of jockeying position to to get in there with the king you describe charles's sex life i think as both a bonus and a drawback Mm. and i suppose that relates to perceptions of the king and he was he was a monarch who was very conscious of how he was perceived How, how did the sex life play into that it played into the idea of the monarch in an interesting way. He, he, when he came back to um, England, he was 30. He was very tall, six foot two. He was tremendously good looking. He was very athletic, very physical. And the number of mistresses that he'd had seemed like, you know, quite a good thing because they proved not only that he was sexy, but he was virile, he was potent. And some of that energy was going to flow into the country. And then he married Catherine of Braganza, but already there were problems because he had a powerful mistress, Barbara Villiers, uh, who was a direct rival to the Queen. This wasn't really widely known for a time, but it did become known. And then when he also fell in love with another mistress and the gossip sort of got going, it became very easy to start blaming the court and particularly blaming Charles's adulterous ways for all the disasters that were falling because his own queen Catherine of Ganza had no children but the mistresses did so it seemed like a curse of God so instead of the virility being a good thing it became a bad thing and then also I mean there were more stories still you know that during times of crisis he just uh, uh, became impotent altogether I mean he actually lost that potency and was a sort of limp feeble figure it's very fascinating and very sort of alarming the frankness with which people actually talked about what the king was getting up to Mm. in bed sometimes he seemed to be his mind seemed to be completely on pleasures and not on affairs of state at all but then 
when the great fire comes, he he was behaving like you might expect a you know a modern day sleeves rolled up kind of engaged monarch, yeah. which really surprised me. The fact that he was out there taking charge and involved in the um, yeah. trying to stop the fire. Yes, he he was a very intelligent man, and his ministers called him lazy. In fact, if you actually look at the way he ruled the country, he was quick and he was sort of ruthless. And he didn't like to be seen in action. He would actually manage to get his ministers to do the things he wanted to do. But that mind was really working. And so I think that that's when, when you get the fire, he actually steps forward himself because it's absolutely typical of Charles to get the reports, to immediately go and see, go up river to see what is happening. And then they and then to organise, I mean, to set up rings of outposts of firefighters, to organise for, as it were, refugees, for food to come in from different places, people to be looked after, and actually to go round to the firefighters and talk to them and rouse them. And then, with that same physical, energetic young self too, he and the Duke of York did literally stand in line with buckets up to their ankles in water and their sleeves rolled up and fight the fire. And it wasn't at all an act, nor was it a piece of propaganda. I think that's a moment that Charles genuinely cared and was terrified for the sort of fate of his his city. In terms of the, the intellectual climate of that decade, you mentioned the Royal Society and it was a decade of philosophy and writing of all sorts and questioning. That's, that's something which comes up. Do you, do you think his restoration enabled something to happen or was it something which was already happening in any case? To what, to what extent did the restoration play a part in the intellectual developments? The restoration played a huge part in the intellectual developments because although both in science or even in theatre or in writing things were happening all over the place, what happened when Charles came back was that people flocked to the capital. It's that coming together of different groups so that, say, people who'd been working on experimental research in Cambridge, in Oxford and in London actually met together. Or the reopening of the theatres had been sort of different companies in different places. It all came together. And to actually have a figure who could patronise them, who could say, this is the Royal Society, you know, this is the King's Theatre, gave it a great boost so the restoration didn't cause this change in ideas but it focused and crystallized and gave it terrific impetus now what about religion because religion is a mm. is a thread that runs through the decade and indeed well indeed the, the, the century and and beyond and it seemed to me that there was a there was an opportunity there was a moment there when dissenters could have been and catholics could have yeah. been sort of incorporated into the body politic, the whole fabric of society, and that that moment yes. came and went. Yeah. So, to what extent do you think that was a genuine opportunity, or would that was that was that never going to happen? I think it was never going to happen, but the because Charles, because that was one of Charles's yeah. kind of in his manifesto, as it were, wasn't yes, that he was going yes. to heal that? Yes, when when um, Charles was in Breda before he came back to England and he made this declaration and one of the things he promised was what was called liberty to tender consciences so that the Puritan inhabitants, the Presbyterians, the members of the sects would welcome him just as much as the Anglicans and so forth and 
he really, he and his advisors, really did think that they would be able to effect a compromise in two ways. First of all, they thought they would be able to set up an established church with the with the return of the monarch. There would be a Church of England of which he would be the supreme head, as there always had been well, since Henry VIII, and that this church would embrace both the traditional Anglicans and the Presbyterians who'd been the Church of the Commonwealth by things like organising congregations through synods who there would be a bishop but they could work together instead of the bishop being the high and mighty and so on. So they thought they would be able to do that and to alter the service and maybe you didn't have to wear surpluses, you didn't have to do things that the Presbyterians considered Catholic ritual. And at the same time, the people who didn't want to belong to an established church, whether it be Quakers or Baptists or the Roman Catholics, would be allowed to worship in their own way. So one is comprehension, bringing it, people into the church, and the other is toleration, tolerating these different sects. And uh, there was a conference uh, two or three months after Charles got back, at which they tried to hammer out this kind of agreement. There was a powerful Bishop of London and then Archbishop of Canterbury, Bishop Sheldon, who was very much against this, who mobilised people, the bishops and the clergy wanted their livings back that they'd had in the good old days. There was a huge sense among the partisan gentry, they wanted the old ways back. And I think Charles, to his astonishment, found himself up against a far stronger reactionary movement than he had ever expected. And although negotiations went on, the end result was the expulsion of uh, dissenting ministers from the Church of England and a complete rift which lasted for a century and a half. Maybe, Jenny, I can ask you finally, how easy or difficult did you find it to to capture Charles the Man? Because he seems to have masks and is obviously a public actor, but at this remove, how possible is it to get close to Charles the Man? Well, uh, who knows? (laughs) You can get close to Charles the man externally. It's it's almost as if you're standing behind him, looking not at him, but looking in a mirror because of the way people react to him. You know, the way he has terrific charm and charisma. He'll talk directly to you. You're the most important person in the world. He's also funny. He's impatient. He's risk he takes people by surprise and so on he drives some ministers mad he's lazy so you can build up that picture of what it's like living with him but he was very careful not to give himself away he does sometimes and there's a flash of anger or a flash of passion and then you hope that someone's on hand whether it be Clarendon or Pepys or to actually scribble it down but I think watching him move through time in an odd way and seeing what he does and how his attitudes change is the closest you get to Charles the Man and you see somebody grappling with difficulties but also sometimes just shutting themselves off and deciding that you know they they can't cope it's a perfectly human thing or they can and they don't give a damn what people think about them and and so on so you can get close but you you never have a a confessional you never have a the man himself pouring his heart out to you 